Hello and welcome to The Leap of Faith. As autumn beckons and the days grow shorter, it's nice to be back with you at this time on a Friday evening. And who by fire, who by water, who in the sunshine, who in the nighttime. On the programme tonight... That's one of the prayers of the Jewish celebration of Yom Kippur, interpreted there by Leonard Cohn, entitled Who by Fire. Later we'll hear of the significance of the Day of Atonement and explore the idea of restorative justice being good for the soul. We'll also hear of a new confidential helpline being run by the Muslim Sisters of Era and its early successes. But first, a high-ranking Vatican official, Cardinal Giovanni Angelo Becciu, has unexpectedly resigned from office, the Holy See has announced today. He previously worked as the second most senior official in the Vatican Secretariat of State. Cardinal Bichu became involved in a controversial deal to buy a luxury London building with church funds as an investment. The agreement has since been the subject of a financial investigation. He denies any wrongdoing. The Vatican is also making news closer to home. This week, the head of the Vatican's powerful doctrinal congregation defended his office's request that the Irish Redemptorist missionary priest, Father Tony Flannery, signed four strict oaths of fidelity to Catholic teaching, saying while it was very unpleasant, it was part of the CDF's duty as the global church's watchdog. Well, joining me from County Tipperary this evening to talk about the letter he received is Father Tony Flannery. Father Tony, you're very welcome. There are a couple of things we'd like to talk about tonight, but let's go back to July this year, and you were in receipt of some documents from the Congregation of the Doctrine of Faith. You haven't signed them. Why? The document that came to me in its usual roundabout fashion through the Superior General of the Redemptorist to the Irish Provincial and then to myself um, contained four propositions. Uh, and in each case, there was a, a fairly lengthy theological explanation of the proposition and then uh, it stated the proposition and there was a spot for me to sign. And then at the end of the document, having gone through the four propositions and me having either signed or not signed them, there was one final proposition that included all four, which I was asked to sign also. So it gave me no outing that I could maybe sign one or two and not sign the others. It was either sign them all or none at all. And they were of such a nature. I was quite taken aback by them, Michael, to be honest. It read to me like a document that could have come out of the 19th century, both in its content and in its tone. It was so dogmatic. There was no opening for any sort of dialogue or any sort of discussion. This was it. Put your name to it. If you don't, you're left in the position you're in, which is out of ministry. If you do, we will consider a gradual readmission to ministry. So that was the option I was presented with. If we go back to 2012, you came to the attention of the CDF. You were writing in reality at the time, the magazine. What particularly caught their attention at that time? The interesting thing about that, Michael, is the main thing that caught their attention on that occasion was something I had written about the origin of priesthood. I had said in an article, at the time we were in the height of the clerical sex abuse issue and 
One of the reports, I can't remember, was a decline of the Dublin one or whichever one had just come out when I was writing the article. And I put in this sentence that um, priesthood as we have it today is certainly not what Jesus intended. Now, that's what got to them. And so because they reckoned and accurately so that I was saying that Jesus hadn't instituted the priesthood. So that was the main one at the time. As the uh, to and fro went on in the course of that year, 2012, other issues came in to do with the ordination of women, uh, homosexual teaching. They were the main ones. But the, the one most of all that seemed to annoy them was the origin of priesthood. And what I find very interesting now, Michael, is that the document I got this year there's no mention of that at all. That's gone. Uh, I think they had sort of accepted that at this stage, the widely held theological opinion in the Catholic Church is that Jesus did not institute a priesthood. There is a little extra twist to the tale because after 2012 and when you came to the attention of the CDF, the, you got involved with the Association of Catholic Priests. And, and I read recently uh, as well that you, you almost had a, a level of energy or enthusiasm as a result of what had happened to you back then. That's correct. I actually was involved with the Association of Catholic Priests. We founded the association in 2010, which was two years earlier, and I was one of the co-founders of it. And certainly that gave me a lot of energy and leading on from that, I got involved in the international church reform movement. And that was certainly extremely interesting and stimulating for the next oh, four or five years after I was sanctioned. That was an exciting time in a lot of ways in my life. Yes, you're right about that, Michael. But I'm just curious as to have you lost the fight in you when, uh, at this stage as a result of, you know, a process you've been through? Uh, I wouldn't say I've lost the fight, Michael, but what has happened to me, I suppose, particularly with this latest development, is that I just uh, have had enough of the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith and the sort of way that they operate and they, um, their thinking and their theology. It's just so far removed from where I'm at now that I don't see any point in having any more to do with them. But I will continue plugging away. I have a new book coming out in a few weeks, which I suppose, I would hope, will be a fuller and a better answer from me to what the congregation had presented me with. And I would hope as long as I have the energy and the health to continue writing and to continue speaking on church reform because I'd be as absolutely convinced, probably more so than ever, of the essential need for church reform. In fact, uh, unless the church reforms itself at a fairly fundamental level, I would think now, I can't see it surviving in any real vital way into the future. But you, it sounds like you're, you're caught in a process because I'm, I'm thinking, for example, that there is a, a cardinal in Luxembourg, uh, Cardinal Jean-Claude Hollerich, who's 
expressing opinions very similar to your own, but has he come to the attention of the CDF, for example? <laughs> That's a very good one, Michael. Uh, that was highlighted by Robert Mickens in an article in response to my situation. And of course, it isn't just that, Cardinal Hollerich. A good number of bishops, particularly German bishops, have come out with similar statements that Basically, they are supportive of the equality of women and indeed some of them even go so far as to mention specifically the word ordination of women. Um, And that's what was so anomalous about the CDF document. Uh, The reality is that Francis has freed up the church for discussion and debate and at this stage, no subject is off the agenda. But the CDF don't seem to have quite copped on to that yet. Tony, one particular thing I'd just like to ask you about, which is that you're basically in an organisation that has rules, that you have to follow those rules, or you're not a full and proper member of that organisation. How do you answer that? Well, that wouldn't be remotely my understanding of church. And indeed, uh, Michael, it wouldn't be Pope Francis's understanding of church. Um, Francis has, from the very beginning, from his his very first uh, um, encyclical and right through in all his uh, speeches and talks and sermons and that, he emphasises the importance of freedom of thought, of people expressing their views, speak without fear, speak openly. He's constantly saying things like that. The notion of church as just a a club with a list of rules that everybody has to obey is anathema to my understanding of church. In fact, I think it's anathema to Jesus' understanding, even though Jesus didn't found a church. But uh, there was a freedom about Jesus and a standing back from the institution and a criticism of institutional thinking and institutional behaviour. So that notion of church, if the Catholic Church was one that just had a set of rules that everybody had to obey, I certainly would not want to be a part of it. There'd be no freedom of the spirit in that. Do you have to grieve or have you grieved for the loss of your ministry? I sure I have really, like it's eight years now, Michael. Uh, of course I did. And to some extent I still do, though, you know, isn't that the nature of life that you move on? And even with this latest uh, development, and this latest development from the CDF came as a result of uh, uh pressure or what would you say, uh, groups, the Association of Catholic Priests, the Irish Redemptorist Council and the lay group who had got together to um, put pressure on on my behalf. Um, And all of those were very committed and very supportive of me and uh, very much appreciated it. But this is the end result of it. And I suppose even though I was delighted that people were supporting me and, and, and trying to do something, I never really had any expectation that any change would come about. Um, so I suppose largely, Michael, the grieving process has passed 
And even if I was still in ministry, I'd be right up against retirement age now anyway. Uh, and I'd be slowing down in my exercise of ministry. So maybe it, it's, it's appropriate enough at this stage in my life. Father Tony Flannery, thank you for joining us tonight on The Leap of Faith. Thank you, Michael. Avino Malkeno, sung there by the American singer Shulam. This prayer is recited in the hope of forgiveness for the year just ended and in anticipation of a better year to come. Yom Kippur is the holiest day of the Jewish calendar. It begins this Sunday evening and ends on Monday evening, and it's the Day of Atonement after the Jewish New Year, Rosh Hashanah. On this day, Jews ask God for forgiveness for their sins to secure their fate. It's also known as the Sabbath of Sabbaths. Well, to discuss this further and the idea of atonement and restorative justice, Hilary Abramson, chair of the Dublin City Interfaith Forum and chair of Rights and Practices with the Dublin Jewish Progressive Congregation, joined me earlier, along with John Lonergan. John was for over 25 years governor of Mountjoy Prison until his retirement in 2010. I started our conversation by asking Hilary the significance of Yom Kippur. Well, I have to go back to Rosh Hashanah, because Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur are the 10 days of awe, or the days of introspection. With Rosh Hashanah, we start with a service for the New Year, and the New Year is is a very quiet uh, time. We will have a celebratory meal to, to start, but then once we've gone to synagogue and spent the evening there, because, you know, in the Bible it says, and there was evening and there was morning, and so all Jewish festivals start the evening before. What's the role of food in a Jewish celebration? Ooh, now, food is so important. So for Rosh Hashanah, we would have all the sweet things for a new year. You have honey cake and all of, all of those nice things, but generally sweet things. But I, I just have to tell you that between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, you're praying that whatever's in the book of life will be changed, whatever decision has been made. When I was a little girl, I used to think of Rosh Hashanah, that God is sitting up there and he's got this big, big piece of paper in front of him and he's writing, he's like an old man, and he's writing with a quill pen and he's writing down everybody's misdeeds during the year. And during this time and between now and Yom Kippur, you have time to change things around so that if you have done things that are wrong, you can repent for them. Now, things that you have done wrong between man and man, you have to go to that person and ask for forgiveness. But things that you have done between promises you may have made to God or rules that you didn't obey, those you can atone for 
by praying. And we, we don't need a rabbi, we don't need a priest, we don't need a saint to intercede on our behalf. This is something that we do ourselves. Hilary, when it comes to this process of atonement, tell me about it actually having an authenticity. Do you, you have to mean it. You do have to mean it. And it starts on uh, Kol Nidre, which is the wonderful evening before, the, uh, before Yom Kippur. You go to synagogue, you hear this wonderful music, the Kol Nidre prayer playing. Uh, it it sets, sets the soul, it sets everything in place. We have a 25-hour fast, no food, no water. And it concentrates your mind on thinking about how you can improve. What can you do to make the year better, the year ahead better? How can we apologize for all that we've done that's wrong? And, you know, nobody is so bad that they can't do better. And nobody is so good that they can't become even better at that. So this is what we have to to do, to try and improve and promise ourselves and God that we are going to be better people during the coming year. What is that actual process like? I mean, do you call the person on the phone? Do you make an appointment with them? How, how do you initiate that process of atonement? It depends where they are. I mean, you could go to their house if you're nearby or you could phone, yes, or you might have to do it by Skype or, or you know, if they're living abroad. But it's, it's so important. You go and you say, you know, I'm so sorry. I hope you will forgive me for X, Y and Z. Um, but, but that's Is there the an obligation for them to forgive you? No, they're not any, under any obligation to forgive you. It's up to them how they feel. But it would be what we call a mitzvah, which is a, a good deed if they were to forgive you. It may not happen. Um, there, there is, I mean, you can do it by email if you want. There's a, a kind of a, a format that you can say, you know, if I have offended you in any way. John Lonergan is also in the studio with us this evening. Uh, John, you're listening to Hillary describing the process of atonement. And, 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 and given your experience and your background in the justice system, does that work? Is there a principle or a process by whereby somebody can atone for the crimes they've committed? Yeah, it depends very much um, on the individuals uh, involved. Uh, you have two particular uh, important elements to it. You have the victims of crime or the victim if it is a single person. Uh, and of course, you have the, uh, the person who has committed the crime, the perpetrator. Um, uh, so it's a two way process. Uh, we don't have any real uh, structures in place for that type of uh, reconciliation to take place. Now, we had little uh, two experiments 10, 15 years ago around what was called restorative justice. And there was a project in Nina in County Tipperary and in Tala in Dublin. And the, the principle was to try out this uh, idea of restorative justice where the victims um, and the perpetrator would come together uh, and try to resolve the issue through uh, obviously an element of punishment, uh, reconciliation um, uh, and of course uh, a community involvement as well. Um, the problem with it was uh, that it was very restrictive and only very minor crimes uh, and those who committed very minor crimes were allowed to participate. Um, and the victims, of course, participated as volunteers only, so it wasn't compulsory. 
uh, the old restorative justice system that was introduced uh, hundreds of years ago in New Zealand had a, a, a very different uh, perspective to it and, and, and approach to it. And that's where they believe that restorative justice involved everybody, the perpetrator, the victims and the community. And all three worked together uh, to reconcile. Um, now, there was a, an element of punishment, as there should be. If somebody does wrong, they need to be punished. There was also the support for the victims because many victims suffer greatly. Um, and in, in our conference and in Ireland, very little, if anything, is done for victims. Uh, people talk about it, but in, in practical terms, there's very little support, there's very little counselling, there's very little compensation for them. And that's where, our as a society, we are not dealing with it on a holistic basis. There seems to be somewhat of a spiritual process involved as well because both parties have to recognise each other as human beings. Yeah, I've always said myself uh, that, you know, the philosophy that underpins uh, uh, the Christian uh, communities and the Christian philosophy is a very, very powerful philosophy, irrespective of religion and irrespective of uh, even spirituality. But the, the, the philosophy of forgiveness, reconciliation, uh, generosity, uh, th- those, uh, the, the fundamental, mer- showing mercy, being merciful, they're all fundamental requirements uh, of the Christian fates and if we were to put them into practice uh, well then uh, you know restorative justice would be easy but as we know many many people uh, struggle in many areas of uh, the Christian philosophy like forgiveness many people struggle to forgive they just find it very very difficult even for very trivial um, uh, offences I suppose that is the the real challenge uh, for people that uh, you know act, are active uh, in, when, in whatever particular faith they are involved in but don't often put it into practice in their daily lives and that is the challenge Hillary what's the consequence for a person of the Jewish faith if they don't atone? I think it's it's up to the person whether they do or they don't. Some people do some people don't and you can't really, there's no retribution that you can you can spread you know to, to condemn them I was thinking of that list that that old man was writing with yes, the quill. Yes, so, you know, when he's writing in this this list and then you can be inscribed in the book of life, you know, at the end if you have into, uh, atoned. And if, you know, if according to God everything is correct, then you're sealed into the book of life for the next year. Hilary Abramson and John Lonergan, thank you both for joining us on The Leap of Faith. Thank you for asking me. Thank you, Michael. Next this evening, the Muslim Sisters of Era is an independent organisation of mainly Muslim women living in Ireland. They're a voluntary organisation that provides support principally to women. They have a new initiative, a dedicated confidential community helpline that's currently on a trial basis, helping people particularly during the pandemic. To find out more, Dr Sabina Sayed, a medical practitioner, is here. Sabina, welcome to The Leap of Faith. We'll talk in a moment about some of the work being done by the Muslim Sisters of Era, but in particular, let's focus on this community support helpline. What was the idea behind it? Well, basically, we came up with this idea uh, in our community when we saw people, and especially women, uh, who come from different backgrounds, struggling with their issues and um, feeling uncomfortable to go to the bigger organizations to talk about it uh, because of the cultural barriers and communication barriers. So that is where we got the idea from. And uh, since um, the MSOE started, the Muslim Sisters of Era started, we were getting calls on different levels um, uh, to help them out uh, with different issues they were facing 
so that's where we got the idea that we should start a community support helpline. So we have a dedicated line to help women in need um, in any ways that we can. And what typically have been the issues that have been coming to the fore? Um, well, there are different issues, you know, like how family runs, they have family issues, they have domestic issues. Um, there are people we work with are um, uh, in the refugee camps, in the direct provision centers, um, people who are um, vulnerable and who can't go to the main support helplines. Those are the people who we are helping them. I'm curious to find out a little bit more about why they can't go necessarily to many of the support systems that are already in place. Is is some of it a cultural issue? There are cultural issues because the, there are issues that they can't explain properly or the main main support helpline might not be able to understand from their perspective. And uh, they, may, they might find it difficult to explain it to them, what's going on in their lives. And that's where we come in and because we can understand their perspective culturally as well, that uh, they belong to different community, they belong to different cultures. So what something is taken uh, differently uh, in the Irish culture might be different in some other culture. So that was the main reason that we started this helpline. And then secondly, then there was issues of um, language barriers. So we have uh, volunteers who speak different languages and uh, the people who are being trained for this support helpline, they speak different languages. So it becomes easier for them to explain their issues and their problems if they want to in their own ways. Of course, in many cultures, privacy is is a major impact as well. How do you how do you reassure people about the confidential nature of the support you're able to give? Well, this is a completely confidential um, help support helpline, and uh, we took our training from the Rape Crisis Centre, and we are due to have a training, um, and we are we will we'll be taking the training shortly in a couple of weeks' time from the Women's Aid as well. Uh, this dedicated helpline is being dealt by on a trial basis by our chairperson Lorraine at the moment. She is looking after all the calls uh, and uh, we log the calls that we get, we log the issues that we get and it's completely confidential. Now at the moment it's currently running only on a Monday I believe from 10 o'clock um, until noon. Yeah, it is from 10 to 12 on a Monday. That? We are going to extend that and we are waiting for our training to go through our training so that more people can be there on the helpline to um, to bring it on a full run-on basis then. Have there been any special concerns or issues that have uh, arisen as a result of the pandemic, particularly for people of the Muslim community? Yeah, the pandemic has been the same challenges to the Muslim community as it has been to any other community. Um, it was very difficult for us, especially during the month of Ramadan, which uh, which was in the month of May this year, and we were in a complete lockdown. So that was very unusual and difficult time for all the Muslim community because we are so used to going to the mosque and uh, having gatherings and breaking fast together. So, um, But thankfully, we all um, kept going and uh, it, it, it it turned out to be a very spiritual time by being by yourself as well at the same time. And during the pandemic, oh, we have been helping loads of people by providing them with hampers, people who were vulnerable, people who were isolating, people who were cocooning. So it was a very busy time for our organization during the pandemic as well. We were t- mentioned at the beginning of our chat about the uh, helpline. Can we give people the helpline number now? If there's anybody who particularly would find uh, access uh, to your group. Uh, helpful. Yes, of course. The helpline number is 085-768-5338. That is 085-768-5338. People can reach us on this number uh, Monday from 10 to 12 for now. And at the same time, they can uh, visit our website, which is muslimsistersofera.ie, and they can get the information there. They can follow us on the Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and they can get all the information from there. 
Dr. Sabina Said, thank you for joining us on the programme tonight. Thank you very much, Michael, for having me. Thanks a lot. And that's the Leap of Faith for this week. From our producer, Sheila O'Callaghan, Damien Chanel on sound, our broadcast coordinator, Jarlath Holland, and me, Michael Cummins. Good night. <laughs>